I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians 6. Uh, we're gonna, I'm going to read a, a portion of a very well-known passage. We're, we're, gonna, we're entering kind of an exciting part of the scriptures, uh, one that many of you have heard many times. And we're going to spend, we're going to just, we're going to park here for about this week and the next eight weeks on these 10 or 11 verses, Ephesians 6, 10 to 20. Ever heard of the armor of God? Um, that's what we're going to be, uh, we won't, won't dive into the armor of God this week, but we're going to talk about this portion of the scripture and, and just stay here for, uh, for a while. And uh, I trust that, you know, Matt uh, mentioned earlier what is it that what is it that uh, keeps us from the joy of following Christ or seeing following Christ as a joy? And I, I think you can make a really strong case that the fight that we fight mostly is a fight for joy. It's a fight for joy, not not in things that we can get in this world or this life or more stuff, but a fight for joy ultimate joy in Christ. Um, I, think, I think you could, from, from beginning to end of the Bible, I think you make a very clear case that we fight for faith and we fight for joy. All right, if you have your Bibles open, follow along Ephesians six ten to 13. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Let's ask God to bless his word. Father in heaven, we... Just come before you as your children, and we come to be fed today. You are a God who is lavish and generous, and you are overflowing in joy and life and spiritual bread for us. And I just ask on behalf of myself and us here that you would, you would fill us, you would speak to us, you would feed us. Um, Holy Spirit, I just uh, admit my utter weakness and inability to do anything profitable today apart from you. And I ask you to come and I ask you to fill me and I ask you to use the words that I speak anointed by you to have impact in our lives, not just for today or this afternoon or for a short time, but God, that you would mark us for eternity from being together today in Jesus name. Amen. A long time ago, um, 14, 15 years ago when Alyssa and I were first married. Um, <clears throat> Sabrina was a baby. We didn't have any other kids, so it must have been 14 or 15 years ago. Uh, just normal night. We went to bed. <clears throat> quiet night of sleep. Uh, Sabrina was sleeping. Alyssa and I were totally out. Just a normal night. All of a sudden, about 3 o'clock in the morning, I hear this loud crash downstairs. Breaking glass. In a moment, I went from a dead sleep to wide awake. No one had to wake me up. No one had to say, what was that? I heard it. I was up. I was at the edge of my bed. 
I was thinking, what the heck? Is, I, I immediately just thought, there is an adversary in my home. There's someone in my house, right? Didn't have a gun, so I, I grabbed the next best thing, a book or something, you know. Um, and wa- <laughs> I didn't have a baseball bat next to me either, so I grabbed something in my room uh, and walked downstairs and slowly freaked out and made my way through the main floor of our house and discovered that it was just a um, mirror in our powder bath. Three o'clock in the morning. Imagine if that happened to you. Would you be, would, would you be surprised or alerted as well? Um, it was not an adversary, but I thought it was. Each one of us does have an adversary, though in our homes, around us, following us, scheming against us, who hates us, who wants to destroy us. And this morning, I want, for you and I, I don't want to freak you out, okay? I don't want you to leave afraid today, but I do want this morning to serve as a wake-up call, as, a, as an alarm, as an alert to us, to this evil scheming enemy that we have. If, I, if this morning serves that purpose, I would be very happy about that. I think a crying need for our day is for Christians to see themselves as soldiers in a war. As soldiers. Every one of us, okay? From the biggest and strongest to the smallest and weakest. The stay-at-home mother to the corporate executive, to the business owner, every single one of us, we are soldiers in a war. And I don't want us to just give some kind of passive mental assent to this truth, right? Because we've heard these verses before. We've heard other verses. The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We've heard these verses before. We don't want to just give mental assent to this truth. But to truly see the life and death nature of the battle that we're in. John Piper said, it is crucial for Christians to see their life as warfare. That is not all that it is, but it is that always. So it's not just that, but it is that always. We are always in a war. Think about this. The, the enemy never takes a day off. He doesn't care if it's your birthday. Doesn't care if it's Christmas. Doesn't take vacations. He doesn't call in sick. He hounds God's people, opposes God's work tirelessly. In these verses, Paul labors to awaken us to diligent, alert, Serious, earnest war. He, he, he labors with the words that he uses. The, he uses, I mean, he's like piles one description upon another to awaken us to diligence and seriousness out of our slumber. The first verse, excuse me, first word in our verse is the word Finally. It's as though Paul is saying, after all that I've said, here's one more thing. Finally, 
after all of the eternal blessings that Paul outlines in chapters 1 through 3, I mean blessings that are so massive, so massive, that at the very beginning of Ephesians, he says every spiritual blessing in heavenly places is yours in Christ. And then he spends the next two chapters telling us about them. After all of these blessings, after all of the exhortations and just practical instruction that we've been going through the last several months or last few months, in chapters 4 to 6, Paul says there's one more thing. There is one more thing. And, and we shouldn't see this as like a PS at the end of a note, right? Oh, and by the way, just keep this in mind, right? Or just, by the way, you know, just tack something else on at the end. This isn't said because it's the least important thing or just one more thing to remember, but rather because what he's about to say poses the greatest threat to us. There is a threat that could undermine everything that Paul has said up until now in Ephesians. So we would be wise to pay attention. He says, finally, I have one more thing, very important thing. Now, some have suggested that the word finally, actually a better way that it could be phrased is from now on or for the time remaining or for the rest of your time. Meaning that from now until Jesus returns, we are to be on alert. We're to be awakened. We're to be serious and diligent and have a mindset that is that has its attention focused, at least in some measure, on the warfare at hand. Uh, William, William Gurnall wrote a, um, he wrote a three-volume set of books called The Christian in Complete Armor on these verses in Ephesians. I mean, um, mainly on these verses, he pulls in certainly other passages from the Bible. Amazing, amazing books. Spent a lot of time thinking about this. Here's what he said. The Christian must fight the enemy for every inch of ground along the way. Only those noble spirited souls are fit for this calling. The very nature of this calling precludes a life of ease. C.S. Lewis said, said something almost the same where he says, there is no neutral ground in the entire universe. No neutral ground. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. So we have an enemy that doesn't fight fair. He doesn't follow the rules of war. He doesn't give a rip about the Geneva Convention. He wants to destroy us and he will do whatever he must in order to do so. So finally, Paul says, finally... You could sum up the rest of these verses. Fight. Finally, engage in the war. Finally, take up your arms and do battle against your adversary. So for the remainder of our time, I want to break up the message into two sections. And it's this. The first one is to to fight. We need to know our enemy. Some Chinese military guy from hundreds of years ago, maybe even thousands of years ago, said the most important thing in warfare is to know your enemy. I don't know if it's the most important thing, but it certainly is important. So we want to know our enemy so that 
we are alerted and made serious and diligent in the battle. And second, we want to know our God so that we are courageous and confident. So first, know your enemy. Know your enemy. Your enemy, the enemy of God and God's people and God's purpose in the world, he is a powerful enemy. He's a powerful enemy. The enemy's leader is named Satan. Our text calls him the devil. Other names in the Bible for him are the ruler of this world, the God of this world. He is called the evil one. Uh, Earlier in the book of Ephesians, he is called the prince of the power of the air. He has governing authority over in measure as God has allotted it to him. He is the devil. Ever since in arrogance, he rebelled against God and was thrown down. Satan has been God's arch nemesis. He opposes God at every single turn. He hates God. He hates God's ways. He hates God's people. And he hates the gospel. Now we need to be clear about something. Satan is not a God. Okay, Satan is not like deity. It's not like there's the good God and the bad God and they're doing battle and he's just the, you know, the opposing God to the true God. He he is not all powerful. He is not all knowing. He is not everywhere. He is totally limited. He is a created being. So whenever there's an attack, we shouldn't think that it is directly Satan, the one Satan attacking us. However, we do fight Satan the same way that, uh, say, the Allied forces fought against Hitler, right? When they were in Europe and they were fighting against the German forces and all of the allies of Germany, they were fighting in, in some way, they were fighting Hitler. And so in the same way, we are fighting Satan. We are fighting Satan by fighting his captains and foot soldiers and all of his allies. And we need to know that he has lots of soldiers and allies and captains. The enemy has hordes of workers and allies and soldiers. And we see that in verse 12. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. Some people have spent a lot of time trying to dissect the difference between rulers and authorities and cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil. And uh, maybe we should do, maybe that's a worthy cause. I don't know. Uh, We're not going to do that today. I think the point is, if you remember, Paul wants to heighten our attention and give us a sense from this text that this is serious. And so I think the main point is that Satan is not alone. He has a vast army. He has a vast army. We need to be aware that it is not Satan alone, but he has a vast army. Army. So these beings, rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil, whatever they are, we just need to know that there's different ranks, power, and authority, and they are many. They are many. 
<clears throat> if you remember in Mark chapter 5, Jesus comes to this, to this location. I think he cro- crosses the, Ga- the Sea of Galilee and comes to <clears throat> uh, Gadarenes. Um, and there's this, there's this crazy guy that runs toward him. You guys know what I'm talking about? The guy that they tried to chain up and he broke the chains and he ran around naked and he was, he was nuts, all right? You would not let your kids out of the house if he lived in your neighborhood or town. Um, and he came to Jesus and Jesus cast out, said to, de- there, he was demon-possessed. Jesus said, come out of him. And then asked him his name and the man, and the man responded, the demons responded through the man, uh, legion, for we are many. So a legion is, it's a, a group of Roman soldiers that are three to 6,000 people. Was it, does that mean there were three to 6,000 demons in this man? Who knows? But there were many. There were many. I get concerned when I hear Christians say things like, oh, Satan's just a pipsqueak. <clears throat> He's nothing. We just kind of shrug our shoulders at him and turn away. We just, we don't give him the right kind of attention that we ought to, that we don't have, <clears throat> in a sense, not reverence like we do for God, but in a sense, a right kind of reverence for the power that Satan has and the hordes of workers that he has. John Calvin, in his commentary on these verses, said, this is not an enemy who may be safely despised. Oh, that was good. This is not an enemy that may be safely despised. So the enemy is powerful. Satan and his demons oppose God continually, and they oppose his people, and they work evil in the world. It's not hard to see the evil being worked in the world by these forces of wickedness. We also need to see that the enemy has, not only is he powerful, but he has many sneaky and cunning strategies. Your enemy is not other people. Did you know that? Your enemy is not other people. I'm going to say that again. Your enemy is not other people. Paul says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, other people people, other human beings like us, but we wrestle against these spiritual forces of wickedness. And this is one of the great challenges of us having this attentiveness, not just for a day, but ongoing, because we don't see this enemy with our physical eyes. We can't touch him with our fingers. We can't smell him. We can't hear him with our physical ears. Our enemy is unseen, and this can lull us to sleep, which is why it presents even a greater danger. If the enemy of our souls was another human being, it would make perfect sense to get more guns, or bigger gun, or bigger muscles, or round up some big guys and get them on your side, right? Perfect sense but our enemy cannot be seen. He is not another human being. He is spiritual. Our warfare is very different than the kind of warfare between human beings. And I think we're meant to get from these verses that no mere human power can withstand this enemy. No amount of puffing yourself up and self-esteem 
can prepare you to fight against this enemy. It was said by someone that the devil comes and harms us from concealment. He comes and harms us from secrecy, from a place of not being able to be seen and, and from concealment. Here's the key phrase where it talks about the sneaky and cunning strategies of the devil. It's, we are told to take up the armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. The word scheme, the Greek word is methodios. It's where we get the word method. So there are methods, there are schemes, there are strategies. There are uh, schemes actually means, here's, here's how else you could, you could say it, cunning arts, deceit, craft, and trickery. The devil wants to trick us. He wants to deceive us. He wants to con us and use cunning arts in his strategies against us. He does not play fair. And the devil's always scheming. He's always strategizing. And you could spend a lot of time just on talking about the schemes of the devil. And in fact, William Grinnell spends a lot of time talking about that in his three-volume work. I just want to quickly point out five schemes of the devil this morning. Temptation. One scheme of the devil is temptation. Did you know that the enemy really wants you to sin? He wants you to live a life of sin. He wants you to go against God's ways. He wants you to do what is wrong rather than right, what is evil rather than good. And so he tempts us to do wrong. He tempts with lusts and greed and jealousies. And he, te- he tempts us with, when others don't treat us well, he tempts us to take offense and be angry and be unforgiving and hold a grudge. He tempts us in many many ways. Oftentimes he tempts us most when we are weak, weakened by sin, weakened by sickness, weakened by discouragement, or just weakened by exhaustion. We see this so clearly with Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus wasn't weakened by sin or sickness or discouragement, but Jesus hadn't eaten for 40 days, right? Matthew chapter four says, after he had not eaten for 40 days, And it says, and he was hungry. The devil came and tempted him. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray in the Lord's prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil or from the evil one. So one scheme is temptation. He's called the tempter, right? That's his name. Jesus calls him the tempter. Another scheme is accusation. Accusation. Revelation 12:10 calls him the accuser of the brothers who accuses them night and day before the Father. 
And the reason the devil accuses us is because he wants to produce in us insecurity and a lack of assurance of salvation. He wants us to feel, you know, Romans 8 says, there's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. That's an amazing verse because when the devil comes at us with accusations, what happens? Condemnation. And here's why this is such a sneaky scheme. It's because when he accuses us, he actually has things to accuse us about, right? Doesn't he? I'm sorry, am I, am I, uh, he does me, okay? He, when he accuses me of sin, he's right, I've sinned. He accuses us night and day. He wants to produce doubts of God's grace and God's goodness and of the work of Christ. He wants to ruin our, our assurance of God's love and lavish mercy that he's poured out upon us. And, and, he, and he does this. There are many Christians who live a life of guilt and condemnation when Christ came to take it away. He accuses us. Ever felt that from the, the devil? I mean, and here's how it works. You blow it. And you get before God and you make amends with someone you sin against or whatever. And then later on, you just have this nagging feeling that things are not okay. You've confessed your sin to God. And God's word says, he, whoever confesses his sin, God is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse of all unrighteousness. But then there's just this nagging thing. If you replay it in your mind. You're just reminded of how much of a jerk you were. Accusation. And you wonder, right? If I'm really a Christian, why would I behave that way? Accusation is a huge strategy. Another one is deception. Revelation 12.9 says, calls uh, the devil the deceiver of the whole world. Jesus calls him the father of lies, and he's been lying from the very beginning. He is not there to tell you anything true and good when he comes to scheme against you. Genesis chapter 3, from the very beginning, somewhere between Genesis 131, I suppose, and Genesis 3, the, the devil fell, right? Genesis 131, God looked at everything and said, it's very good. Genesis 3, all of a sudden, the serpent's in the garden. Somewhere in there, right, he, he fell. And in, in the garden, he's right there. And what does he do? He's lying to Adam and Eve. He's calling into question God's word. Did God really say? But he also dece- he deceives us with desires that may seem right. Remember the rebuke of Jesus when Jesus rebuked Peter. And Jesus is saying the Son of Man must go and be crucified and rejected and etc. Right? And Peter said, no way! That can't happen to you! I don't know about you, but <clears throat> I relate with Peter often. I'm, I'm just, you know, if I would have been there, I mean, I may not have been as a loudmouth like Peter or as boisterous as him, but I just think I would have agreed with him a lot. And Jesus turns to Peter and says, get 
behind me, Satan. For your mind is not, not set on the things of God, but on the things of man. So he deceives. Here's another way that he schemes. False teaching. All throughout the New Testament. Old Testament too, but just very clearly New Testament. Paul warns Timothy in 1 Timothy about doctrines of demons. Teaching of demons. Jesus says in Matthew 24 that toward the end, false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I think maybe 10 or 11, that that Satan masquerades himself as an angel of light. He comes beautiful. He sounds nice, right? He's a sheep that, or he's a, he's a wolf that dressed in sheep clothing. There's another reference to him and, uh, or to false teachers. And he looks so nice and beautiful and has such flowery words. And how could this be wrong? He deceives and he, or excuse me, he perpetrates false teaching. And finally, another scheme is division. Division. I love where Paul says in 2 Corinthians 2, forgive so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his devices. You think unforgiveness is just an issue in your heart? You think it's just you holding on to a grudge? You think it's just between you and, and one other person? Oh, no. That's part of Satan's device. That's part of his scheme. So the enemy has many sneaky and cunning strategies. And the third thing we just need to know about the devil, and we need to know him, is that he is bent, I would say hell-bent, on destroying you. He doesn't have any positive thoughts about you at all. He wants to destroy you. He wants to take you down. And he will attempt to do this with pain or pleasure. Doesn't matter to him. With luxury or jealous desire. With a frontal assault or secret seduction. Remember Samson. Right? This mighty man. What did he do? I think it was like a, a job, the jawbone of a donkey. He killed a thousand Philistines. And it was the seduction of a beautiful woman that took him down. Jesus says the thief, and I, I don't think Jesus specifically, or mainly has the devil in mind there, but the devil certainly is the chief thief, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That's it. That's all he comes for. I hope that this sufficiently convinces you that you should be awake. And that you are no match for the enemy on your own. That you are no match for him. We don't want to trust in ourselves at all. <clears throat> we don't want to say, oh yeah, we're just going to psych ourselves up and get them. No, we don't want to trust in ourselves or our pathetic resources at all. We want something more than that. And that's why we need to know who our God is. 
We need to know who our God is. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord. Now, Reed's going to take this next week. And I think he has a, pray for him, because I think he has a very formidable challenge to tell us, what does it mean to be strong in the Lord? So I'm just joking. No pressure, Reed. Okay. Um, <clears throat> be strong in the Lord. In the Lord. We just sang, right? Who is this Lord? We sang the song Yahweh, right? Yahweh is, is, is when your Bible says, has L-O-R-D in capital letters in the Old Testament, that is God's name, Yahweh. Who is our Lord? It is Yahweh. It is, it is Jesus. Jesus is our Lord. We need to know who our God is. We need to know who this Lord is. Daniel chapter 11 says, those who know their God, you know what it says after that? Will be strong and do exploits. Those who know their God will be strong. So I'm not going to dive into this because Reed's going to do that next week. But I just want to, I want to spend a bit of time. Who is this Lord? And why does it matter that we know him in light of Satan and all of his demons and all that he wants to do to us? <clears throat> First, our Lord is Jesus and he is Lord over Satan. <clears throat> Jesus is Lord over Satan. I love Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, where it just exults in all that Christ is. Jesus, I love what Doug Wilson says, Jesus is not like the first, you know, flower child, just this little flowery guy walking around in first century Palestine. He is the Lord. Here's what it says in Colossians 1. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is the Lord and he is the Lord over Satan, which means that Satan is not autonomous. Satan is not God's equal. We've already talked about that. But he does not have free reign to do whatever he wants. Jesus is Lord. Martin Luther once said, the God, or excuse me, the devil is God's devil. <coughs> the devil is the Lord's devil. So we need to know that Jesus Christ is Lord over all, right? After he rose from the dead, he said to his disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. He is Lord. <clears throat> Second, we need to know that Jesus is Lord of redemption. He is Lord over Satan. He is Lord of redemption. Jesus Christ has decisively though not finally defeated and triumphed over Satan through his death and resurrection. Let me say it again. Jesus has decisively, though not finally, triumphed over Satan through his death and resurrection. Listen to what Colossians 2.15 says. Let me see. 
Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities. Rulers and authorities are in our passage too, right? He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in the cross. Satan thought he was getting the upper hand in crucifying Jesus, but he was committing suicide. Satan thought, I got him. We're taking him down. And he was signing his own death warrant. And because we are in Christ, you and I, if we are, if we are in Christ, stand in the triumph and victory of Jesus. Did you know that? We stand in the triumph and victory of Christ. Earlier in Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1, this is part of Paul's prayer, amazing prayer in Ephesians 1. And he says, I pray that you know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward you, toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. This power that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church. If all things are under the feet of Christ and we are part of the body of Christ and we are seated with Christ, we are in Christ, then we need to know that through the death and resurrection of Christ and the new life that's been given to us, we can stand and fight from a place of victory rather than from a place of defeat. And third, we need to know that Jesus is the Lord of the church. Jesus will extend his triumph at present and in the future through the church. Um, we just we are not fighting a losing battle. We are not just fighting in vain. We are not fighting in vain. We are fighting a a battle, a war that we will be on the winning side of. Christ is coming again to completely rout and remove his enemy and our enemy forever. When when Alyssa and I were in were in college up at Iowa State, we were part of uh, amazing college ministry up there, Salt Company. And we sang this song that was based off of Romans 16, 20. And it says, the verse says, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan underneath your feet. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. And we'd sing the song and the chorus was, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan. Yes, God will crush him underneath our feet and everyone would jump and stomp on the ground. It was awesome. Totally awesome. I don't know how that works. I really don't. But it's there, right? The God of peace is going to crush Satan. And we're not going to get the credit for it. But he is going to do it underneath our feet. He's going to do it underneath your feet and my feet. And so we wrestle. We wrestle, don't we? We fight. We don't take a nap. We don't say, that sounds good. I've heard these verses before. Oh, you know, let's. We fight. We wrestle. 
It's interesting, Paul does not use a military term. Instead, he uses a, a sport term, like wrestle. Instead of, he does t- say, take up your arms later, but he says, he, he describes it as wrestling. We wrestle. Wrestling was a, a popular sport in the games back then, the ancient games, like the Olympic Games today. And the, the people of Ephesus would have known this very well. So Paul describes our warfare as wrestling. This speaks of hand-to-hand combat. I think there's at least two reasons why Paul uses this term wrestle. And we're going to close with this. Because it's single combat. Colin's a wrestler here. At least he was. He wrestles one other guy. Right? It's a team sport in the sense that there's guys rooting him on and stuff like that. But he needs to go into the ring and wrestle. He can't have somebody else do it for him. He can't have his team come with him. He must go to the mat and fight his opponent. And you and I all must as well. And the second reason I think Paul uses this term is because it's close combat. When the enemy comes, he moves in close to take hold of you and throw you down. William Gurnall said this, Armies fight at some distance. Wrestlers grapple hand to hand. You may be able to dodge an arrow shot from a distance, but when the enemy actually has a hold of you, listen to this, you must either resist manfully or fall shamefully at his feet. What will you do when he comes to grab hold of you? Will you give in to temptation? We all have. Will you cower at his accusations? We all probably have. Will you buy into everything you hear from somebody who seems nice and call it truth? We probably have. Or will we resist, as Grinnell says, manfully? Here's where our fight starts. This is it, okay? Confess Jesus as Lord. Confess Jesus as Lord. The, the word confess means, it means more than just saying the words, but it doesn't mean less than that. It means more because it means that we agree. When to, the word confess means to speak the same as. So when God says confess Jesus as Lord, we are agreeing with God that Jesus is Lord. And we say those words with our lips. The most fundamental Christian confession, Romans 10, 9 tells us, is the confession, Jesus is Lord. Either Christ is Lord of all in our lives, or he is not Lord at all of our lives. I'm not saying we obey perfectly, but either we bow the knee to Christ as Lord of all and just say, come, right? You're Lord. Be strong in the Lord. You be Lord, Jesus. Either bow the knee to Christ as Lord of all, or he is not Lord at all. Either Christ is Lord, or our lives are full of chaos. So confess Christ as Lord. 
bow the knee to Jesus Christ. Bow the knee to him. The devil doesn't care if you worship. You don't have to worship him. You can just have some other Lord as long as it's not Jesus. As long as it's not Christ. Now, some might say, what are you talking about? I'm here at church today. Yeah, and, and that's great. I'm glad you're here. You should, I, mean, I want you to be here. But is he Lord when you walk out the doors on the way home, in your home, in your workplace? Is he Lord in your, the privacy of your own heart? Is he Lord in when you are uh, deliberating on whether to buy this or whether to not? Or is he Lord? Is he Lord? Confess Jesus Christ as Lord. We sang that song, Good shepherd of my soul, come dwell within me. Take all I am and mold your likeness in me. And I love this line. Before the cross of Christ, this is my sacrifice, a life laid down and ready to follow. Before the cross of Jesus Christ, laying our lives down, saying, you are Lord, I'm ready to follow. Let's do that. Father in heaven, we worship you. We thank you. You, Jesus, you are Lord. We just confess right now. I confess you are Lord, it's got to be more than words, but it can't be less than that. You are Lord to the glory of the Father. We want to be strong in you, Jesus, and not find our strength in something else or someone else or try to do that. So often, we don't have joy in following you because we want to go our own way. God, we have an enemy of our souls who wants to destroy us. But you are the Lord. And we want to be strong in you. As we continue to work work our way through this passage in the weeks to come, I pray you'd show us what that looks like. Give us your roadmap for how we can be strong in you and in the strength of your might. I pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen.